it through <laughs> the season here tonight first Samuel chapter 24 if you have your Bibles first Samuel chapter 24 first Samuel chapter 24 moving right through hard to believe we're almost through the book of first Samuel doesn't seem like we've been going through it that long, but I guess we have. About uh, six more chapters, seven more chapters to go. But once you find your place there in 1 Samuel chapter uh, number 24, have you stand. We'll read just a little bit of the chapter here and see what the Lord has for us. 1 Samuel chapter number 24. <coughs> Bible says here in 1 Samuel chapter 24, uh, beginning verse 1, And it came to pass, when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. That's an Israeli rest area. And David, that's funny, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy in thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. It came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. Now, if you're a, a strict uh, fundamentalist, you're going to have trouble with that verse because you got Saul wearing a skirt. <laughs> Amen. Verse 6, And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. David also rose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David, seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered thee today into my hand in the cave, and some bade me kill thee, but mine eyes spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my, my father, see, uh, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand. And I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. It's good to see Dad here with us. Dad, would you ask the Lord's help in the preaching tonight? Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Yeah. <laughs> and bless the food. Amen. <laughs> Been enough food for the last a couple days to go about a month, man. <laughs> now, uh, the last chapter, uh, chapter 23, we've, we've seen the Lord continue to deal with and develop David. And if you haven't picked anything up yet, what you and I are reading is we're reading history where the Lord deals with a man teaching him to trust him. And we know that uh, David's going to be king one day. We know, we know the, what the Bible says about it. But you can't overlook the process in which David goes from the sheepfold to the palace. And it's one that is uh, not all, uh, you know, and they all lived happily ever after. And that's kind of like the Christian life, ain't it? Christian life is filled with some great spots, great moments. Every once in a while you'll have a, 
uh, your uh, entrance into the ministry at the Valley of Elah where you get to defeat Goliath. Maybe you get some victory over your flesh or some victory over some things that are getting after you. Amen. But the fact of the matter is, is you and I have to learn to trust the Lord. Have to learn to trust the Lord. And, uh, but David, he's still learning to rely upon God. And I think sometimes we get this idea, but the, you're, if you're a Bible reader, you don't really believe this, but some people get this idea that David was just, a, you know, the best of the best of the best. He was when God's hand was upon him, but he was very much human. And uh, David's still learning to rely upon God instead of family. That's a lesson that you're going to have to learn. Uh, David's still learning how to rely upon God instead of friends. There'll come a time in your life, if you haven't already experienced it, where you'll try to go to your friends for comfort, and the Lord wants you to go to Him. And uh, David's still learning how to rely upon God instead of finagling the situation. And as Christians, it's easy to try to work the thing to come out in your advantage. That's who we are, that's what, especially as a man, that's, who, that's what you are, that's what you do. You're, you're a fixer and you're a gambler. And so what you try to do is you try to, like Jacob, you try to you know, send all the presents in front of you to get Esau's wrath down just a little bit because you think he's still mad at you. He never was. You know, and by the time you get to Esau, he's like, hey, man, what's up? What's up with all, you know, what's up with the uh, Future Farmers of America Club all in front of what we're going on? He's like... Oh, it's a present for thee, my Lord. And basically, he's just all nervous he's going to get it in the neck. And that's what we try to do a lot of times. We try to help God out. We try to finagle the situation. We try to make sure everything is in place as we think it should be. But yet the Lord's trying to teach us something completely different. And so when we put all the junk in the way of our Christian life sometimes, we get discouraged when things don't turn out the way we had set it up to turn out. But that's finagling. God wants to be, if I could say it like this, God wants to be all in all in your Christian life. Without friends, don't take this wrong, without family in the way, without finances in the way, without your stuff. And what we want to do in life, and I say this from just a few years of experience, is figure out God. You say, why? Because we're human beings, we want to figure it out. If we want to learn a trade, we figure it out. And then we figure that since we've learned our trade, this is how you deal with it. But you know, the Lord doesn't deal with everything the same way every time. And you can't figure out God. You can't put God in a box. I'm not going to do a whole lot of preaching tonight. Hopefully not. But as we will never figure out God or put him in a box, and David's learning to lean upon the Lord partially in some instances and completely in others. I believe many times our troubles have arrived and we attempt to figure out that if we just do what we did last time, it'll all be all right. Many times that's not the case. Many times what you did last time, the Lord just had grace with you and he knew you were trying so he gives you a passing grade, but this time he wants a little bit more. And that's what he wants from David. He wants a little bit more. Consider the message you might avoid if you just trust the Lord completely. Consider the mishaps that could be avoided. Consider maybe the majority of our life being rewritten if we would just learn to trust him. You say, but I do trust the Lord. I believe you do, and I believe you're trusting the Lord tonight the best way you know how. See, I believe the best for you. I'm not one of those preachers that uh, tries to kick you and stop you and stomp you. I believe the brethren do enough of that. The devil does enough of that. And if you're reading the Bible, the Bible's doing plenty of that. Amen? I believe tonight you are trusting the Lord the best way you know how, wherever you're at in your Christian life. But you know what? The Lord might just want a little bit more. You say, well, what else could he have? That's a dangerous question to ask, ain't it? Sing the song, whatever it takes. It's a great song. One feller said, well, I would be, so I would be, I'd be careful for singing that song, but whatever it takes. The Lord knows what it's going to take to get you and I to trust him. But I, if you would just give me just a little bit of your time tonight, I'm like, nope, we're going to leave now, preacher. That's enough. <laughs> 
But uh, look with me through this chapter. I want you to see that David, he's reacting like you and I would normally react. He's a good man. He loves the Lord. But he's very much a man. And uh, I, I don't care if I do. I'll just say, you know what the Lord wants you to do sometimes in situations? Nothing. In some of the situations he takes you through, he just wants you to do nothing except trust him. But you know what we want to do so many times? We want to do what we think has worked for us in the past. That's just like what we default to. It's default mode. Default Christianity is to do what we did last time and maybe now do it a little bit harder or a little bit more often, right? Okay, this is, this is how God did it last time, so this is what I'm going to do. And sometimes the Lord just wants you to sit still. He said, be still and know that I'm God. But doesn't the Lord realize that if I, yeah, what? If you do that, it'll be better? Stop it. <laughs> That's not how it works. But notice here in uh, uh, verse number one, I'll just kind of preach through the chapter. Look through the chapter with me. Notice uh, the first of all, we, we start this chapter off with David's fortification. Uh, you say, what's that? Well, verse one, he's in the wilderness of Engedi. And if you remember, we left off a uh, a couple weeks ago about En Gedi, and Gedi is a place of the fountain. You know what I see? David's, a, uh, David's in a well-watered place. You need to be in that well-watered place. You need to be in a place in your Christian life where you're getting enough to drink spiritually, amen? That's what you need. That's why holidays are great times, but they can be dry times if you're not careful because they take our daily routine and they, they kind of like shuffle it up like a, a box of dice and then you throw it. But David's in a, he's in a strong place. He's in a well-watered place. He's in a peaceful place. Uh, not only that, but doesn't the Lord say in uh, Psalm chapter 23 too, He leadeth me beside still waters. Oh, man, that's the Christian life, ain't it? Come on, be honest. When things are peaceful, isn't that a blessing? If you're not going to agree with me on that, you're a liar, man. That's the greatest thing in the world. When you're getting fed and you're getting a cool glass of water and there's no trouble, that is awesome. It really is. I mean, that's to me, that's going to be heaven. No trouble. Uh, just lead me beside the still waters. But don't forget in Matthew chapter 4 that, the, that God the Father led his own son in Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. You see that? See, it's a beautiful thing to be in a strong place, a peaceful place, a well-watered place. But the fact is that sometimes the Lord says, well, it's time to go to the wilderness. It's time for you to be tempted. Because I want to see how you're going to react. I'm going to see what you're going to do. <laughs> I don't know about you, man. I hate that stuff. <laughs> I really do. I'd rather be, you know, leap beside still waters all the time, you know. A little bit of fishing, all that stuff, you know. Everything's good, playing your harp, eating butter and all that stuff. I don't know about the butter, but anyways, you know what I mean. But not only is Ingedi a place of the fountain, but if you remember a couple weeks ago, if you just look at what that word Ingedi means, it's just a place of happiness. It's a pleasant place. That is a Christian life, isn't it? When things are happy, people are happy. <laughs> Everyone's in fellowship one with another. I love that. I really do. Uh, there probably was a time in my Christian life where I just wanted to stir it up. <laughs> just be a burn people saddle. Not anymore. I look, for, I look for a way to have peace. Why? I like it. I really do. I enjoy, uh, not at the sake of truth, uh, not at the sake of compromise, but I like getting along with people. I really do. I like it when there's a common ground that we can grasp a hold of. But you and I both know that's not always the case. In fact, the matter, if you're here tonight, and I believe everyone here is probably saved, if you're saved, there's going to come time and place where you just, you're just rubbing everything, you know, raw. But uh, it's a place of happiness. And uh, that's what I long for in a Christian life. I really do. You say, preacher, you mean you don't long to get stronger in the Lord? I do, but I'd rather be beside the still waters. <laughs> I'd rather be a place of pleasantness, a place of happiness, a place of strength. You ever stop and think about that whole thing about uh, being strong? Uh, Paul said in Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord 
and in the power of his might. I like, I like the word strong. I, I, there was a time in my life where I actually thought I was. And I'd lift great amounts of weight, you know. And it was just great to be strong. It really was. As a young man, the glory of the young man is this. Now the glory of the old man, the Bible says, is the gray head. But if you don't have any hair, I mean, you're struggling there. But another part of the glory of the old man is letting the young men do the hard work. <laughs> Amen. That is a blessing. You're like, oh, man, that's really heavy. And you've had enough days where your back has ached and your hips have ached and your knees have hurt. You're like, all right, yeah, get a hold of it. All right, yeah, get it. Yeah, let's do it. I'll watch. You ever stop thinking about that thing about being strong in the Lord? Bible says, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I think sometimes maybe it's easy to get that thing mixed up or messed up in our mind. You know how you get strong, right? You get strong, you, get, you, you make your muscles strong by tearing them up. Isn't that weird? All right, we're going to do these reps. We're going to do, uh, we're going to do, well, we're in church, we're going to do preacher curls, right? And we're going to do it until our arms are rubber. And when you're done, you're what? You're weak. But that's how you get strong, isn't it? Well, that makes sense because you know what Paul said? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I might have something to say tonight if the Lord let me get it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you and I are going to learn how to trust the Lord, he's going to put us through some unpleasant times. And they're unpleasant not because he made it that way. It's unpleasant because if we're going to get to where we need to be, we have to go through the opposite of what the result is. Does that make sense tonight? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verse 9. Interesting thing about strength. Paul said that when you're strong, it's going to feel like you're weak. And then he, then he says here in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, For my strength is made perfect in weakness. So you mean, preacher, that when I'm strong in the Lord, I'm not going to be like, yeah, probably not. When I'm strong in the Lord, I'm not going to be running my proverbial trap. When I'm strong in the Lord, it's not going to be because I had the right answer to everything and I'm kicking everybody and kicking everything down and flexing my muscles. Paul said, when you're strong, you're going to make you feel like you're weak. Look at verse 10. He said, for when I am weak... Then am I strong? I don't know about you, but man, that's hard to process. Because when I think of being strong in the Lord, many times it's like, okay, that means I have to, I have to have the answer to every fool out there. I always have to be on top of every situation, right? Strength. Paul said, if you're going to be strong, it's going, you, you're going to feel weakness. You're going to feel weakness. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9, Paul said that when you're strong... That someone else had to become weak for you to get there. Isn't that weird? If you're going to be strong, someone else had to become weak for you to get there. 2 Corinthians 13, 9, Paul says, For we are glad when we are weak and ye are strong. Of course, he's being sarcastic. But didn't Jesus Christ come down and suffer the tortures of basically hell on earth and suffered, went through absolute weakness so you could be strong in the Lord? See what I mean? But I see this is David's fortification here in verse 1. He's in a strong place. He's in a place of happiness. He's in a place that's well watered. I mean, and yet he's a pretty good place, man. He's got something to drink. He's got something to eat. He's got good fellowship. He's probably got access to his family and friends. But notice here in verse 2, David's fortification turns into David's irritation. If you look there at verse 2, you know what happens? All of a sudden... Uh, holiday's over, <laughs> Christmas and New Year's are shot, <laughs> you got the bill from whatever it is, your credit card is, but notice here, uh, look at verse 2 real quick, I see David's irritation, you can't always be uh, at the stronghold of Engedi, I'm just, I'm just saying that, the Lord's going to put you through some things, and I wish I hate to say it, I wish I didn't have to go through it. But at the same time, if I never go through another hard time again, I'll never grow. It's like that, uh, it's like that caterpillar, you know, that little fuzzy thing, you know, inching along. 
he goes in a cocoon, he's got to struggle to become a beautiful butterfly. And as he sees emerging from that cocoon there, you can't cut that thing open. He'll never turn it. It takes all the struggle he's got to metamorphosize. Now look at verse 2 here. The Bible says, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. This is David's irritation. Now, the interesting thing here is David ain't causing anybody any trouble, is he? You ever been there in your Christian life? Ain't causing no trouble. Ain't bothering nobody. You ain't arguing with nobody. And here comes the irritation anyways. You're like, what? I didn't ask for this. I'm up here minding my own beeswax with a bunch of goats. And here comes three thousand. They're after me. He calls himself in the end of the chapter, what does he call himself, a flea? This dog? He ain't hurting nobody. He ain't causing nobody any trouble. You ever stop and think about that irritation? I liken that to vexation. You know what vexation is? That's how I feel about this world. Look at Numbers chapter 20. I'll show you this real quick. Numbers chapter 20, verse 15. Numbers chapter 20, just a little bit of flipping tonight off the bat before we settle in for a few minutes. 2015. The Bible says, how our fathers went down into Egypt. There's a picture of the world, right? And we have dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers. Doesn't this world vex you? I mean, you know, when you cuss, it's a different thing, but when they start cussing, doesn't it bother you? I'm being real with you. You know, when you say the proverbial whatever it is you hung up with, you're like, well, you know, that's just the way it is. But then the world starts Doesn't it bug you? It bugs me. I've been ready to fight before people cuss around my family. <laughs> Say, not you. Yeah, me, man. You start cussing around my family, especially when they're younger. Man, I'd probably be in prison. I shot somebody. Why? Just vexed? You say, well, you couldn't control your temper, and you do such a great job too, amen? <laughs> that's vexation. Uh, you know, that, that's the Old Testament reference. Now, show, look at this one in uh, Peter. It's Second uh, Peter chapter 2. I'm telling you what, Christian, if you're going to learn to trust the Lord, you're going to have to get irritated every once in a while. And God's going to have to put you in situations, and I'm just saying this because I believe 2024 is the year of irritation. <laughs> you say, really? Yeah, because it's not getting better. You've, we have got to stop thinking like the world, oh, it's getting better. No, it's not. It's 50 degrees out, people. It's almost January. <laughs> it's not getting better. Old preacher Talmadge said this, he said, a green Christmas produces a fat graveyard. And he wrote that in the 1800s. All right, 2 Peter, chapter 2. Look at verse 8. You know who was vexed, right? Yeah, I know most of you know it. 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 8. The Bible says, for the, that righteous man, talking about Lot, dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. You know what, you know what vexed Lot? The Sodomites. They ought to vex your soul. That's what the Bible says. That's the Bible. That's not opinionation. That's the Bible. If they don't vex you, if something tells me you've been digging into what they do and you're okay with it. But that stuff uh, vexes my soul and it vexes Lot's soul. And that's David's irritation. But look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 real quick. This irritation, this vexation you know what it is don't you it's just simply tribulation you and I got to go through it's tribulation why the Lord wants us to trust him Romans chapter 8 look at verse 35 835 the Bible says this who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation stop right there and you know the answer no you're going to have to go through tribulation. It'll never separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ loves you no matter what you go through. No matter how good you got it, no matter how bad you got it. That's tribulation. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is good to be reminded of this stuff. Because for whatever reason, there's a gear. There's a gear inside every person that thinks because you have a couple victories... 
and you make it through uh, another year, that thing should get better. Can I just remind you, they're not going to get better. This is how this thing works. While you're going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, this is how this thing works. Remember this, we preach this through the New Testament, uh, going through uh, the book, I believe it is, 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> but what happens is the Lord, when you're ready to listen, and when you're ready to take instruction, the Lord will reveal truth to you. That's how he does it. All right? So you've heard people say, well, I ain't getting anything out of the preaching. Oh, okay. There, there could be, maybe the preacher laid an egg. Right? Preachers are human. Preachers aren't always prayed up and saved up and paid up and all the rest of that stuff up. Maybe the preacher laid an egg, or maybe the Lord knows that you're not willing to listen, so he's not going to give you anything to begin with. That's not Calvinism either, but the Lord waits until you're ready to receive instruction, and then he lays it on you. And then what he does next? Then he lets you go through tribulation to see what you're going to do with what you got. You say, what is that? That's confirmation. When you go through that difficult time, it's confirmation that the truth you got was the right truth. So whenever you grow in your Christian life, man, I tell you what, that I may know him, right? That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, but right behind the power, yeah, the flexing is the, is the trouble. How's that verse say? I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. You see how that goes? He reveals it to you because you're willing to listen. You get the power because you got his word. That's the truth. And then he tests you on it. That's the fellowship of his sufferings. And that thing is a cycle over and over and over again. What happens is a lot of Christians don't go through many things because they may not, A, be in a place where they can get the truth. B, they might not be willing to listen to truth. But when you finally get it, it goes downhill at first. Why? That's confirmation that what you got was the right thing. But it's David's irritation in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I know you know the verse, but it's always good to be reminded. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 that no man should be moved by these afflictions. I'm saying David is going through it. He's on the run, he's God's man, and he's God's king, and he's still going through it. And you're going to go through it this year. And I don't know what it is you're going to go through, but it ain't going to be very fun. It's coming to a theater near you, amen? You know, in the battle, theater is a place of, uh, of, uh, of fighting, but First Thessalonians 3, 3, the Bible says that no man should be moved by these afflictions. Look at it. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. So when the hard times come, why the surprise? I'm preaching to myself. I mean, really, I'm preaching. Uh, why the depression? Why the, why the, why the uh, long face, right? That's like what the, far what the farmer say to the horse. You know, why the long face? But anyway, so why, why we get a, I can't believe this is happening. What do you mean you can't believe this is happening? He said it was coming. So David goes from a strong place. He goes from fortification <laughs> to what? Back in the frying pan. Back to irritation. 3,000 men are after him. I, I imagine David's like, really? I, I've got 600 men, guys. Really? I mean, this isn't even fair. Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, you don't have to turn there knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So let me just say this by way of trying to comfort you and make you understand that you're not alone in what you're going through. You lose a loved one, can I just say there's at least 500 other believers at the same time going through that thing of losing the loved ones. You say, well, yeah, but I'm frustrated in my marriage. Well, there's at least 5,000 of you believers that are going through that at the same time. The Bible said the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren in the world. Nobody knows what I'm going through, right? Nobody knows, right? That's what they say, the trouble I've seen. Baloney, Jesus knows it, but you know what? That's the same afflictions. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse what was it, 13 or 31 or something like that, that uh, no temptation taken you but such as is common. So man, it's a common temptation, and it's the same afflictions. Y'all going through the same things at just different times. But this is David's irritation. Now notice this. Here comes the trouble. Look here in verse number 4. 
David's fortification turns into David's irritation. And know this, because of who he's around, I see now David's instigation. <laughs> you got to be careful who you hang with. Amen? you got to be careful who you fellowship with. You've got to be careful who you uh, let around you that will shape the decisions that you make. You say, you just think you're better. No, it's really important that you have the right fellowship, the right friends, amen, and the right family, if I could say it like that. You have to be careful here in verse 4, the Bible says. Notice that thing starts off, the men of David said. There's no doubt who those men follow. They follow David, but guess what? I see here these men of David, they instigate David. They're like, come on, here's your chance, man. Get him, get him, stick him, right? This is your chance to get him. Here in verse 4, the Bible says, And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee. I never read that verse anywhere. Did you read that verse anywhere? I never read that verse in the Bible. You say, what happened? They make it up, or maybe they just got a little excited. Maybe they just got a little bit overzealous of the situation. And they saw an opportunity to get ahead of the game and eliminate the trouble. Can I say this? When you're going through it and your tribulation and your troubles and your trials, there's going to be a temptation to try to end it like that. But notice, that's not what God wanted. God did not want that thing to end. Yes, Saul would eventually get it in the neck, right? But that's all in due time. That's seven chapters later. But you've got to be careful that you don't allow yourself to be instigated to try to fix the problem yourself. Here's where Christians get in trouble. They see a situation. They don't like it. The Lord's got them uh, holed up in Engedi, in the sheep coats, in the cave. And here you go. I could end this thing right now if I would just... Are you sure the Lord wants it to end? Are you sure the Lord wants this trouble to be over right now? Remember the illustration about the butterfly? If you don't let that caterpillar go through the struggle and go through that near-death experience and you try to help him out, he'll never blossom into that beautiful butterfly. If you try to get out of the thing that God's got you going through right now, you'll not develop the way you should as a Christian. That's a hard thing. Yeah, but I shouldn't have to. Oh, I'm not disagreeing. You shouldn't have to, but guess what? You are going through it. And there ain't nothing I can do about it. There ain't nothing you can do about it. There ain't nothing anybody can do about it. The best friends in the world can't get you out of what God's got you going through. But this David, he gets instigated. And you know what it does? I see here it produces, instigation produces misconception. And here in verse number four, it produces a misconception of God's timing. God's timing as Christians, uh, we're, uh, we're the generation of got to have it done now. Amen. We are, the, we are the generation of one touch by Christianity. That got you into more trouble than anything else right there. Flip that thing right there. But it produced a misconception of God's timing. Notice all those around David, were they on the right side? Yes, they were. They were following David. Is that the right thing to do? Yes, it was. Were they good men? Yes. Were they Baptists? Probably. Why? They were a mess. But they, they instigated David into having a misconception of God's timing. In verse 4, look what they say. Behold the day. Guess what? It weren't the day. <laughs> the day was 1 Samuel 31, verse 6. Not here, verse 4. 1 Samuel chapter 24. It's a misconception about God's timing. In Christianity, we have a tendency to want to go so fast that we can't get the thing done the way God wants it to do. And Christians sacrifice, they sacrifice accuracy for speed. And in your Christian life, you can't sacrifice accuracy for speed. You can't miss the process. You say, are you telling me that I have to put this thing in the granny gear? Yes. And go with granny all the way, amen? You cannot sacrifice accuracy for speed. Remember there's a couple, uh, 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 around, I think it's around 1 Samuel chapter 30. 
a 31, or no, it's 2 Samuel is what it is. You got them two runners, Ahimeaz and Cushai, and one's running faster than the other, but he got to King David. He had nothing to say. You're going to get there before you're ready. You'll have nothing to say, nothing to show for it, nothing to do. But that uh, David's instigation, it produces a misconception of God's timing. He got to thinking, well, maybe now. Maybe this is really what God wants me to do. God never told him that. Who told him that? His friends. You see why you got to be careful? Don't listen to your friends over the Lord. Let me say this. If you ask your friends what to do, they're going to tell you generally what you want to hear. You need to ask someone at least 20 to 30 years older than you that you trust in the Lord for godly wisdom, godly counsel. You ask, if you're 50, you ask someone who's 50, they're going to answer like a 50-year-old. <laughs> I ain't going to help you. Why? You need someone who's already been down that road and already had their heart broken, amen? You need someone that's already has learned to trust the Lord, and has gone through the difficult times, and the Lord brought them through it. But it produced a misconception of God's timing. You see that later on in the Psalms when David says in Psalm 37, 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Hate that word in the English language. Patiently. Patiently. I hate it. He says, fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. Imagine David being up there and, and Saul's got 3,000 men around him and they're all well equipped and they probably got the newest spears and the newest shields and they all probably got the greatest you know, upgrade in you know, Israeli sandal works and all that stuff and armor. And like here I am, I'm stuffed up in a cave here in Engedi. The food's been pretty good. But I don't even have enough, I don't have enough stuff to get out of town. God told me I was going to be king. And here I am running. I'm holed up in the... You see what I mean? It can produce a misconception. Why? Because God's still trying to deal with you. God's still trying to teach you. He's still trying to work with you. Produce a misconception about God's timing. Not only that, it produced a misconception of God's tactics. In verse 4, notice what it says. It says that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. You know, I'll tell you what, at 48, the Lord never uh, seems to ever answer uh, a prayer request like I ask him to. God does not do things the way I do it. That's a blessing, too. When I look at a situation, uh, uh, you've often thought, well, the right thing to do here would be this, and then the Lord allows that thing to happen. You're like, well, okay, whatever. <laughs> the Lord's not like me. Aren't you glad? The Lord ain't like you. He ain't like me and he ain't like you. David said here in Psalm 18, verse 30, he says, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in him. You know, the, the, the greatest passage on this is Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. <laughs> ain't that the truth? I don't think like God does. Why? I'm unholy. He's holy. He says, uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. The way I go about doing something is not generally the way God goes about doing it. I'm just saying he was instigated by his friends who loved him, who cared about him, who loved the Lord, but they, they instigated him, and that produced some misconception of God's timing here, of God's tactics. God, he thought for a moment, just momentarily, and it's, and it's evidenced by him cutting off Saul's skirt, that maybe this is the time for me to ascend to the throne. Let me, you know what God was saying? It ain't your time yet, boy. <laughs> this is not how. Can you imagine the Bible being written? And David slayed Saul in a cave. That would not go over well. You know what that would tell everyone coming up? That if you don't like your enemy, just wait long enough, you kill him and you get a chance. See, God killed Saul in battle. Not by the hand of his brother in the Lord. But it's a misconception of God's tactics, his tactics. He says there in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts and your thoughts. I'll show you another thing I see here in verse number 4. 
I see all this stuff here and produces some hesitation. David's hesitation. Verse 4, the Bible says, The men of David said unto him, Behold, the day which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thy hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. You say, uh, there's not a whole lot of hesitation. He jumped up, he was instigated, and he did it. Well, yeah, uh, it was uh, hesitation to trust God and listen to somebody else. See, if you're not careful, you'll get around people that you trust and get around people that you'll love, and you'll rely on them for counsel instead of God. And it'll produce a hesitation in your life to trust the Lord. You'll just start doing. There's got to come a point in time in your Christian life when you're going through difficulties and troubles where you just come to a stop. And you say, you know what? I don't know what to do, so I ain't going to do nothing at all. The world's way of handling the problem is to stay busy, look busy. If you got time to lean, you got time to clean, do more, work harder, do one more thing to make the boss happy. You know what the Bible says? If you don't know what to do, don't do anything at all. My, my, my. You see the difference between the world and what God wants you to do? Hesitation to trust God, and of course it produces a hesitation to obey God and not hurt Saul. Well, let's move quickly here to verse number 5. I see here in verse number 5, the good thing about David is he, was, he had a soft and tender heart, amen? And I see here in verse 5, just in a matter of moments, I see David's conviction. The Bible says in verse 5, and it came to pass afterward. You ever done something, amen? You ever, you ever sinned? I'll keep preaching, set us out there. And you sin and just like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. And your heart just smites you, smote you. And you're like, I'm such an idiot. And then you get the, the poor me syndrome, right? I know I saved me. I should be in hell with gasoline britches on me. I'm just lowered whale poop in the bottom of the ocean. You know what I mean? And David's heart smote him. That's how you ought to be when you sin. Now, if you can sin, it's no big deal. Okay, fine. Well, there's a problem. But I see David's conviction. Notice this thing here. The conviction in verse 6, he says, The Lord forbid that I should do this. Look at verse 6. He said, the Lord, uh, the Lord anointed him, so I can't stretch my, forth my hand against him. The conviction was the Lord dealt directly with David. And when you're convicted about something, that's how it should be. The Lord should deal directly with you on it. Not what anybody else is doing. But that conviction, man, that's just between you and the Lord. Now, that look at verse 6 and 7. We go from David's conviction to David's correction. In verse 6, you know what he says? He says, all right, guys, look. I'm paraphrasing here. Verse 6, this is what he says. I can't do it. What you're telling me to do, I can't do it. You see it? The Lord forbid that I. He owns up, doesn't he? Those are David's men. And David says, what you're telling me to do, I can't do it. He personalizes it first before he makes it public. He personalizes his own convictions. He makes sure that what he's doing is what God wants. He says, I can't do the thing you want me to do here. And next thing you know, he goes public with it. He says, I can't do it. That's verse 6. And in verse 7, he says, you know what? You can't do it either. <laughs> I can't do it, and now you can't do it. So David makes his conviction personal first, and then public second. Let me give you a couple of examples. As a father, a father should make his conviction personal before he reveals it to his family. Shouldn't be just a set of rules because, well, you know, we need more rules around this joint. <laughs> we ain't got enough of them, you know. A mother should personalize her conviction before she reveals it to her children. How about this one? A pastor should personalize his own preaching before he delivers it to the pew. That's got to come here first. That's David's conviction. So therefore, David, he exercises what? He exercises self-control before he exercises the power of leadership. He says, you know what? God told me that I can't do that, so I'm not going to do that. And I tell you what, it's a good idea if you don't do it either because I'm not doing it. He exercises self-control. See, when you're going through things, you know what the Lord wants to do? He wants to deal exactly with you. You know, when you're going through this thing at Engedi here and you're, you're on the run and you're going through things that you don't think you deserve and people are coming down on you and you don't think there's a cause for it, you know what the Lord wants to do? He wants to deal with your convictions. You see that? He wants to know, are you going to listen to what I'm telling you to do? 
Are you just going to rely on what you've always done? And this is the way we've always done it. And if I always do it the way I've always done it, I'll always be what I always was. I don't want to be what I always was. Well, I think, you know, the rest of the passage, he exercises self-control, he exercises the, and then he exercises the power of leadership. And I don't really want to preach the back half of this thing, but I'll just give you the quick outline of verse 11. You see David's explanation. He comes out of the cave there. He explains himself. And then David, he starts preaching. It's David's spiritualization in verse 12 to 15. And, of course, you know, when David gets to preaching, you know what happens? Uh, you see Saul's contrition in verses 16 and 19. Uh, David was a preacher, and he was laying it out there, and Saul was convicted, extremely convicted over the preaching. And then what you see next is instead of responding to the, uh, the preaching like he should, in verses 20 to 21, you see Saul's worried about self-preservation, and that's it. He's like, hey, man, I know you're going to be king, and... You know, I'm not going to be king. It's going to be bad. But uh, when you get up to the big boy spot there, don't wipe my seat out, you know. That's what he's worried about. And, of course, in verse number 22, you see David and Saul's negotiation. That's just more historical narrative. I'm sure you could mine some more nuggets out of there spiritually. Amen. But what I'm trying to tell you is this. <coughs> the chapter concludes with Saul going back home and David going back to the hold. You say, man, we're not getting very far. It doesn't seem that way, does it? And in your Christian life, you go through time after time after time where you're in a place of fortification and the Lord lures you out with some irritation and he wants to see if you're going to trust him. He wants to see if you're going to trust him or if you're going to try to get out of the thing. That's what I notice about Christians. I notice that about myself in my Christian life is when I start going through things, I'm saying, Lord, make this thing stop. Make it stop. Make it stop. And the Lord's like, I'm not done with you. I've got a few more phases of that refiner's fire before we go on to the next chapter. And you see, chapter by chapter, David learning to trust the Lord. As David continues to trust the Lord, a bold and daring lesson, I believe, emerges from the chapter, and you can't miss this. It should challenge every one of us here. Even David, the mighty man of God, struggled when presented with the opportunity to destroy his enemy. You see, it wasn't about David's enemy. It was about David's God. The desire was there by David. The ability was there. But that's not what God wanted David to do. You know what God wanted David to do? And here's the message. That whole thing was about this. God wanted David to sit still under the pressure of battle. Remember where they're at? They're in the sides of the cave. You know what God wanted David to do? Let him do his business and leave. But do you see the temptation? Rocco, let's get him. Let's, let's stick him. And David's like, I could. I could do a real good job. And it's like he's got a little bit of spirituality. And he's like, I'm going to cut part of his skirt off here. Why? And now he's got to backpedal. He's got to call him my master. He's got to be, he's got to go through, and I didn't preach this part. He's got to go through some humiliation But the Lord wanted David to sit still under pressure. Sam Jones said this. He says, it is one thing to do the will of God, and it's quite another to suffer the will of God. Most anybody is willing to be a hammer and strike for God. Doesn't that sound good? Go get Goliath. Yes. Woo. Bust him right in the head and go chop his head off. Doesn't that sound fun? Maybe not to the ladies, do it. I mean, that's exciting. I mean, get all fired up and get, I'm just froth at the mouth and, you know, sing hold the fort and victory in Jesus and chop all your enemies to pieces spiritually. That sounds like a blast, doesn't it? But how about this? You turn that thing around. It's another thing to suffer the will of God in your life when God says, stay in the cave. Don't move. Don't kill him. Don't mess with him. Don't hurt him. Don't say anything about those people that are lying about you. Don't do anything about people who are mistreating you. Like, oh, you're kidding me. And the Lord's like, I ain't kidding you. Stay still. Sam Jones said this, humanity wants to fight back and kick back and talk back. And that what you want, that's what I want to do, especially if you're wrong. 
I know you, some of you find this hard to believe. You don't know me very well, amen? It's a joke. But when you say something wrong, there is so much red blood and sinfulness inside of me, I will set you straight. But you know what the Lord wants you to do? Many times he wants you to zip the lip. Sam Jones said, I never fought back or kicked back or talked back in my life that I was not sorry that I did. Now, here's the thing. The context is going through tribulation. The context is going through trouble. The best thing is to stand and hold out and let your enemy kick himself to death. And he will soon do that if you will hold right still. Sam Jones said this, one of the soldiers in the last war, that was the Civil War when he wrote this, said this, one of the hardest things I had to do during the war was to lie still under fire. And we got a good book, don't we? And I'm telling you what, most of you know how to use it. Doctrinally divide it. Practically apply it. And when some sucker starts mouthing off, you just want to, yeah! But a lot of times the Lord just like, just lay down and lie still under the fire. Let the battle rage. I got you. Stay in the sides of the cave. In the sides of the cave is where you find that cleft of the rock. And that's what the Lord's teaching David to do. As we close this chapter, we're on the brink of a new year. Will you allow yourself to be God's anvil this year? Oh, we want to be God's hammer. Let me bust someone for Jesus. Amen. But wasn't when the Lord wants to be, let you be the anvil, are you willing to be the anvil for God this year and be struck for the Lord? Will you allow yourself to suffer the will of God when it's accomplished through your hurt? Are you willing this year to lie still under fire and refuse to fire back, placing all of your faith and trust in God who knows how long the battle will last, how hot it will get, and who will get hurt and who will make it out? As we learn to sit still and lie still under fire, which, by the way, I'm still learning to do, might we take confidence in 1 Peter 4.19? Might we see these, this verse in a new light? It says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. When you go through trouble this coming new year, Will you just remind yourself, God, you're a faithful creator. Thank you. I'm just going to lie still under the fire. I'm going to let my enemy kick himself half to death. Once you stand, we'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Sit still under fire. All right.